The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which is the passage that we're considering during this season of Advent 2020. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing this look at the, the preliminary part of it, at least, the sort of the backdrop of what, what are known as the 13 attributes of divine mercy. And so we, we're continuing to look at those. We will begin looking at them individually starting tomorrow, but there's background that needs to be laid out here. This is, this is a Jewish concept. You know, it's based on their reading of that passage and finding 13 attributes. There are two different lists of those 13s. I'm going to choose the one I'm going to go with. Um, they're slightly different, um, but very slightly. <laughs> so it, it, they, they encompass the same basic things. One is just there's one difference between the two. So, so this, it's an important part of Judaism. It's an important part of Judaism, particularly around the time of um, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in, in the fall, uh, as the year begins, and, and Rosh Hashanah is when um, the, 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 the books are written for the following year, who will live, who will die, who will prosper, who will struggle, all that kind of stuff. That's when the books are, are written, and then so 10 days later is Yom Kippur, so Rosh Hashanah just means uh, head of the year. And then Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. So what you get is, is in those 10 days, you can change your, um, your year by doing acts of charity and worshiping and all those kinds of things. And so these 13 attributes are an important thing during that period of time in the lead up to that because it's a reminder who God is. Because you can come to conclude that he is a God of judgment and a God of justice, but that has to be balanced by God's own self-revelation. Even in the Old Testament, there was a self-revelation, and yesterday we looked at the, that revelation of God's mercy in the first uh, book of the Bible in Genesis, and I've already talked about what led up to the events of Mount Sinai when the law was given. And then afterward, with the sin of the golden calf, this is God's self-revelation after he agrees to forgive the people and give them a new set of the Ten Commandments. And so he, Moses asks to see God's glory, and God reveals himself in this way and proclaims on his name and says, this is who I am. And you can trust him as opposed to trusting the politicians we have in our day who, who on the campaign trail say one thing and then when they get to Washington do something completely different. And so they don't keep their promises. God is not like a man that he would lie. He's not like a man that he would deceive. No, God is very clear on what he will and will not do. He's very clear with his people in his covenants to say, if you do these things, then I'll do this. But if you do this... It won't go well for you. But a covenant is an everlasting thing. And so, so while at any given time you might look and say, well, they don't, they don't look particularly blessed, well, the reality is it's, they're still in the covenant, and they still have responsibilities for restoring that covenant. That's true in the Old Testament. But it's also true in the New Testament. We can get ourselves away from God 
We can get ourselves away from God by neglecting to worship, from neglecting to be in his word, from neglecting to uh, to do the things that he has said to do, and to neglect to be in prayer. So if you're not spending time with God, you're getting further and further away from him. The covenant has to be restored, and it's restored through your confession, your confession of your sin. And that covenant can only be restored through the confession of sin and the appropriation of Jesus' blood shed on the cross to cover that sin. We, we can't pray properly without confessing our sins because we, we're in a state of unreconciliation. We have to first be reconciled. In the, in the Anglican service, what you do is you go through the process of, you have the sermon and all that, but, but you also, together, do two things. You confess your faith in the words of the creed, and then you confess your sin, and then after that comes communion. But there's this other piece in between, and that other piece is called the peace, P-E-A-C-E. Um, and what, what we're doing is we're proclaiming that the peace exists among us. We have come to a peace with God through our right confession of who he is, and then through the confession of our sins, and because we confess our sins, he is going to forgive us because of his mercy. And so now that we've established peace between we, the people of God, and God himself, what we then do is we declare that peace with one another, which is essentially saying, I forgive you, whatever I have against you. And I've certainly seen people who normally sit in a certain place who suddenly sit somewhere else, and what you realize is they're unreconciled to the people they moved away from. And they don't want to share the peace with those people. Well, that's an impaired communion. It's an impaired communion between you and God to the extent that you're carrying unforgiveness, but it's also a state of impaired communion for the entire body of Christ because it's based on a lie. The lie that we just proclaim to one another that peace exists between us is broken because it's based on a lie. If you and one other person are unreconciled, then we, the congregation, bear that. We bear that iniquity in our, in our midst. And we all live, then, in an impaired state of communion. It's an important thing for us to be reconciled to brothers and sisters who have sinned against us or who we have sinned against. So in, in that context, I want to give you a little bit of background on how this is important within, the, um, within Judaism. So, okay, so the, the main thing is, is to understand this. It's not a quality of God to be merciful. It's the way he interacts with people. The word is derakim, which are his ways. They're, they're not his qualities. They're not midot. They are derakim, which are the ways God works with us. And so it, it's—I'll it, give them to you very quickly. The, so it begins with Yahweh, Lord. The Lord, the Lord. So the first Lord is a compassion before a person sins. The second one is compassion after a person has sinned. The Lord, the Lord, a God, L, mighty in compassion to give all creatures according to their needs. So L is not the personal name of God. It is, it is who he is. He is God. Yahweh is the personal name. And so you get... Before a person sins, after a person sins, mighty in compassion to give all creatures according to their need, which is sort of general grace. You know, it's universally given. And then merciful, 
that humankind might not be distressed. Gracious, if humankind is already in distress. It's a restoration, is what grace would be there. Slow to anger, abounding in kindness and truth. Keeping kindness, steadfast love. Uh, hesed is the word there in both those. It, hesed is plenteous in kindness and then keeps kindness, keeps hesed, which is uh, sustaining faithful love. Uh, keeping kindness unto thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and then pardoning. And it's interesting, the way that they use them is, is that these are not to be recited in prayer by a single person. They're, they're to be recited by an entire congregation. And a congregation is defined as, as ten Jewish men. And, and we know that, and, and it, it goes back, the tradition goes back, to uh, Abraham bargaining over Sodom. When, when he says, how about if there are ten there, will you destroy it? And the answer is, no, I won't destroy it if there's ten uh, righteous men found there. And so, so ten Jewish men are required to form a minyan, a congregation, a synagogue, whatever you want to call it. That they're required because otherwise, if there are not ten of those present in a place, God might destroy it. And you don't build a synagogue that can be destroyed. So the, the, it's, it's got to be recited by the congregation. And it's partly because God deals with a people, not individual people, in this way. But it's also intended for two things. It's intended as an act of worship. We're praising God. We're adoring him by recalling who he is and what he does. The gracious way in which he deals with humankind, in which he deals with sinners who are deserving of what? Death because of our sin and because of our disobedience and our rejection of him. But he deals with us mercifully so long as we come on his terms. Right? I mean, he's not going to deal with us mercifully if we reject his son as Savior. That's not how it works. So what, we have to come on his terms. And that's the parable that Jesus tells of the, of the wedding feast where the, the invited guests won't come. So then servants are told to go out and compel others to come. And once they're there, one is thrown out. And why is he thrown out? Because he refused to wear the wedding garment. And what does that mean? Well, it, it means that garments were provided for guests by the host. And this one guest refused to accept it. And he decided he'd come his way. And he's thrown out. And that's exactly the point is to say that there's only one way. And we can't choose our own way. We don't get to do that. No, if we do that, then we're lost and we're tossed out. So it's important that we understand these things, that we receive this mercy to the extent that we come to God in, on his terms. Now, there's a general mercy poured out on humankind, which, which is to say that we don't all die because of every sin we commit. There's a general mercy and a general grace, and that's expressed in um, the covenant that God makes with Noah and with all uh, creation in the ninth chapter of Genesis. So there's, there's a forbearance towards sin, and, and we see that, for instance, when God tells Abraham his people, Abraham's people, God's people, are going to be enslaved in Egypt, and they're going to be there 400 years because the sin of the Canaanites, the people who dwell in the land God's going to give them, has not yet fully polluted the land. So God forbears with them 400 years, and his own people are kept out of the land 
because this sin has not completely engulfed them, the Canaanites. And so there's the forbearance there that sometimes we need to understand. God's forbearing with something else that prevents us from being in the place we believe is rightfully ours or a place that God has promised to us. And so he deals with all creation mercifully. He deals with his specific people even more mercifully. And so we are given the task and the pleasure of adoring him for those things because we've been given the Holy Spirit, which allows us to recognize these things as true. And so what I'm working on here and what I want us to work on is the vocabulary of praise. And so I'm giving you 13 different ways to praise God, and that's, that's important within Judaism. They're recited every weekday, uh, holy day, when the Torah is taken from the ark. So they recite these things then. It's customary in certain synagogues, Ashkenazi synagogues, which is a form of Judaism, that on the fast days, which this passage is read, the reader actually stops reading and the congregation is compelled to join him. Now, there's two reasons for that. One is a worship reason, and the second is we, that congregation, and we, God's people, are intended to see to deal with people in this same way. These are part of God's character, and they're supposed to then be part of our character. So the more God reveals about himself, the more he reveals to us about how to bear his image to the world. So it's important that we see that and understand that, that these aren't just attributes of God— As image bearers, they are intended that they would be the way that we would deal with him and with the world. And so it's a place, they're recited, as I said, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, and then repeated again on the day of Yom Kippur. And I didn't really say much about Yom Kippur, but, but... but what I said was this is that in those 10 days, there's certain things you can do, like giving to the poor, praying, keeping certain mitzvah, that all those things that, that then can change your yearly destiny because the books are finally sealed on Yom Kippur. So the books are written on Rosh Hashanah, and your fate is sealed on Yom Kippur. You have an opportunity, a last opportunity to change your destiny in the 10 days between those two things. And so what it's an encouragement to do is it's an encouragement to them to be like God and also an encouragement to say, come and confess your sins and repent and turn around and and go from those things in order that your destiny for the year would be changed. And so they're reminded that they're coming to a merciful God who's going to take away their guilt, who is willing and ready to take that away, but who will not clear the guilty. Those who don't confess, those who refuse to confess, and so this, these 10 days are the days of awe. It's when they're to, to change that by changing their lives. So it, it's, that is the, the way that they use it and understand it. But then there's some other great insights. And, and the, the, what, it, what it's to say is, is that nobody in that congregation is able to fully image all those things in their lives because only God can do that. 
So what, what it says is that the sort of the sum of our individual mercy or mercifulness could potentially <laughs> include all 13 of those things. But none of us can do all 13 of them. Only God can do that. But then they also say this, and this is another really important thing. No matter how merciful you might be, no matter how good you might be at any one of those attributes, you're never as good as God. And here's the way that they see that. And this is, I think it's a great explanation. What it says is any person can show mercy to, to another person. If somebody comes up and begs from you, for instance, um, you can show mercy to that person. But what they recognize is this truth. There's always restraint, and there's always a calculation involved in how merciful we're going to be. I, you know, okay, so you need this, right? You're begging. So I'm going to give you something that I've decided I can afford to give you. We're probably not going to overgive, is what, what they're saying is. Now, I know people who have. Certainly, I know people who have overgiven, overextended this, this uh, mercy to other people. And in every case, when you do that, I think, maybe not every case, but really close, because obviously I've done this, um, you get burned because you made a bad mistake, because you lack the discernment that you really needed. But it's better to err in God's world on that side. So, but what it says is that God doesn't make that same calculation, and that's exactly what we see on the cross. It's exactly what we see commended in Abraham. He did not make the calculation when he was told to take his son. He didn't make the calculation. He didn't spare Isaac. He was prepared to sacrifice him. And then God didn't allow that. God didn't make the calculation. We were worth it for his own son. Jesus offered himself on that cross. It was his decision. He held nothing back, nothing in reserve. He just fell on the mercy and the love of the Father. And if you want to know how much the Father is merciful towards sinners, you need look no further than the cross. He's willing to sacrifice his only son in order that we might be forgiven. And for us to presume that there's some other way is to reject his son and his sacrifice. You can't have it one way or the other. No. You have to accept the sacrifice of his son, or you have to accept the consequences and the punishment for your sin. And so we Christians, we who have received that mercy, we who have received the grace that's on offer at the cross, we who, who believe and confess the Lord Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him and with Peter, there's no other name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. We who confess those things need a better vocabulary for worship and adoration. And, and that includes not just saying he's merciful, but saying how he's merciful. The ways in which he expresses that mercy in his dealings with humankind. And we should see everything, all these 13 attributes, we should see in the life of Christ. And so that's the goal of looking at this is to say, okay, how do we see each and every one of these attributes in the life of Christ, and therefore how can we be better at 
reading Scripture in such a way that it leads us to praise. As I've said multiple times, if your theology, your knowledge about God, doesn't lead you to doxology, which is worship or praise of God, then you've done your theology wrong. You've done your theology wrong. That's the reason. In the, at the end of the 11th chapter of Romans, Paul absolutely just breaks into spontaneous praise. There's no connection between what Paul says there and what he says later and what he said before. There's just a, an utter break because Paul said, I need a praise moment here. Give me a second. And he does. And so it's important that we understand that, that God's mercy is greater than ours in every single way. None of us are able to do all 13 of these things well, and anything we do well is less than God's ability to do it. I want to add one more thing to this before we end, and that is they actually see another set of attributes, and those are in Micah. Over in the prophet Micah, we see another set of these attributes, and they say that that first one is, quote, the small face of God. And in in, um, Micah, what they see is the, the large face of God. And the distinction that they make between those two things is the fact that in the first set given to Moses, God speaks of judgment. In the second set, which are found in Micah 7, verses 18 to 20, there's no mention of judgment. So they consider one of those to be superior to the other in the sense that judgment is gone. And that will be fulfilled in the end times after judgment. Let me read those to you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. So it's a limited thing. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, and that's that word hesed, loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, and that's another reason why you don't see judgment in here. They're already living in time when they have been judged. He will again have compassion on us, which means he's not right now. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so they see that as another list of the divine attributes of God's mercy. And so we see, however, in the face of Jesus, the supreme exposition and definition of the mercy of God. Tomorrow we'll begin with the first of the attributes.